Uh, children are dismissed at this time uh, to Children's Church. And uh, they go with Lorna. Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up to Romans chapter 15. Uh, we're continuing along through Romans, and we're going to be uh, in chapter 15 again, starting in verse 7. Now, I realize some of your Bibles uh, may put a section break between verse 7 and 8, uh, but I kind of think, uh, looking at the structure, verse 7 uh, flows into verse 8. And so we're going to start there uh, this morning. Listen then to the word of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing uh, to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for uh, your kindness and your love. We praise you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would bless the ministry of the word, that you would speak to us through your word and you would instruct us and correct us, that you would have things here for us and we might respond uh, to the working of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name you pray. we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning by asking a question. I want you to think about this. What does it look like when you welcome someone into your house? Uh, now, ladies and men, I think, respond differently when you welcome someone into the house. If I tell my wife, hey, so-and-so is going to come over. Why don't we have them over? Uh, my wife goes crazy on cleaning everything. And I'm just like, eh, you know, just push that into the corner and it looks fine. What does it take? What do you do when you welcome someone into your house? When they come over, I'm sure many of us have those nice little welcome mats that we put out on our, our front porch. But welcoming someone into your house is, is much more personal than laying a mat out. You get ready. You're excited for them. Uh, when they come, perhaps you, you put on out your, your best tablecloth. Uh, you, you make sure that you have food in the refrigerator for them. You ask them if they'd like something to drink. Water, maybe iced tea, maybe coffee. You not only prepare, but you extend yourself in that welcoming. Uh, you seek to serve them, if we can put it in that way. You give of what you have. Maybe you tell them even, hey, make yourself at home. If you'd like a snack, go ahead, feel free to have a snack. This is where we keep them. Uh, If you'd like something out of the fridge, this is where uh, it is. 
When we think about welcoming, we need to think about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is to welcome others in our midst. And what does that look like? The main point this morning is that Christ welcomes us for the glory of God. And so as Christ welcomes us, so we in turn are to welcome others. And so we look at Christ and we look at what he did and we look at his sacrificial death on our behalf, dying in our place to save us. But we also see that that same attitude that Christ had is the attitude that we should have in terms of welcoming others. So, Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why does Jesus Christ do what He does on the cross, dying for us as a servant on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled to God? But He does this for the glory of God. That at the end of the day, God gets all the credit. We stop and we sit and we are amazed that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are this wonderful triune God to be glorified in all of their working on our behalf. Christ has done this for the name of God so that we would say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Whenever you think about the accomplishment of redemption, you need to think about it in a God-centered, God-focused way. So first this morning, how does Christ welcome us? Well, Christ welcomes us by becoming a servant. He welcomes us by becoming a servant. But Paul is even more specific. Christ becomes a servant to the circumcised. So now, you'll remember as you think through how we're walking through the book of Romans, and you'll remember that that the church in Rome was comprised of people who were Jewish in their heritage. It probably started out of the Jewish synagogue that was there. And now, Gentiles, uncircumcised, had been saved, and they were coming together in one church, and there were all of these tensions going on, between Jew and Gentile. And I think as I mentioned last week and some of the previous weeks, uh, in the ancient world, they often did not get along. And suddenly, they're being told, we're one in the people of God. We need to get along. And so here the focus is, Christ becomes a servant to the circumcised. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So, Christ came to serve the circumcised, to serve Jewish people. So you think about the coming of Christ in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christ comes into a Jewish family. The incarnation into Mary is she is Jewish. And so he comes in that setting. He has Jewish DNA, if you will. Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5 makes this clear. That the physical heritage... Romans chapter 1, verse 3, you have 
that Jesus Christ is of the offspring of David, this line of Jewish uh, heritage in the kingly line. This language here, Jesus becomes a servant, meaning he humbles himself, the Son of God, the eternal Son, who reigns and rules over all things, takes on the form of a servant by humbling himself. And so you can think of this language that comes out in Isaiah and the promises in Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How low was the lowliness of the servanthood of Jesus Christ? He gave up the riches of heaven. Matthew 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He did not come as the best-looking human being that ever existed. He probably did not have the physiques that we often paint him with. You know, his posture is always great. His arms are always pretty, you know, pretty tight. Looks like he works out a bit. You know, the, the beard and the hair is always flowing and glowing. And, uh, and, and he looks like, uh, you know, how Troy Polamalu, the football player, used to do the head and shoulders commercials. And he'd fluff his hair around and had a big wavy hair and he was kind of famous not only for playing football but for the hair that would stick out of his helmet well jesus didn't look like that whatever he looked like it was lowly despised and rejected a man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces his skin was not glowing i'm sure as a teenager he had acne By the way, just human nature. He took all of it upon himself. He comes to serve. The Son of God becomes a servant in his incarnation. And why does he do this? So that he might welcome us into the kingdom. So that he might die on the cross so that we can have all the benefits of redemption and enjoy fellowship with God. But the Son, who deserves our worship, comes in lowly fashion. Now, God exalts Him up out of this. But He comes so that you might be welcomed into the kingdom. So that I might be welcomed into the kingdom. Notice also, He becomes a servant to the circumcised. He is born under the law. And if you read through Luke's Gospel, on the eighth day, they take Him up to the temple as is the commands of the Old Testament Scriptures. And He's a boy, so they circumcise Him. He takes on the sign and the symbol of the Abrahamic promises and covenant. Simeon in the temple, as he sees Jesus, says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory uh, to, and for glory to your people Israel. 
Jesus is the promised Messiah, and this promise was given to the Jewish people. This redemption was always planned to extend to the ends of the earth, and we'll see this as we look at Paul's use of the Old Testament here. But he comes to the Jewish people, the people of God, the people that have the covenant promises, the people that have the patriarchs, the people that have David and the Old Testament and all of the glories, as Paul has said in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. He comes, Christ confirms then, the promises to the patriarchs. So look at this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. To confirm has this sense sort of like to fulfill, but, but more along the lines of to attest. Uh, to to bring to, to completion. It's the same word or a similar word. Uh, it's actually the verb here, but in the noun is used in 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some of your translations will say the prophetic word made more sure. So, so you have the promise, right? You have the promise to the patriarchs. And, and what does Paul, or what does Jesus come and do? He confirms it. He, he completes it. He attests to it. All that he is doing says to us, God keeps his word. And so his welcoming us is a fulfillment of the plan and promises given to the patriarchs. You think of the Abrahamic covenant. In you, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. So he comes, and he comes to the circumcised, and he comes to serve them, and he's fulfilling up God's word, and he's confirming it. But, but it's going to expand, just as God had promised, that these promises weren't Israel only. But that as Israel comes and sees her Messiah, the glory of God will begin to spread to all creation and the nations will come and worship. So again, you think about Zechariah in the temple in Luke's Gospel after John the Baptist is born, speaking and, and singing this song. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from our hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember His holy covenant and the oath He swore to our father Abraham to grant us. God is doing that in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is keeping and fulfilling the Abrahamic promises. And and by the way, let me just plug this here. And some of you know where I'm going. Read your Bibles through in a year. I say that every year at the end of the year as we start the new year, right? But, but how are you going to know what these promises are? Like, how are you going to know the story of Abraham if you don't read it and read it regularly? And, and as you read it, don't just be like, well, you know, I, I read Abraham last year, so I'm going to go to the New Testament for a while. Repeat reading the Old Testament especially. Because you will notice things that you didn't notice before. You will notice the intricacies of the promise. And hopefully as you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll notice how aspects of this promise unfold. That God makes more promises, if you will, that are expanding on this one that was given. 
And, and you start to see all of these themes. We call them sometimes biblical theology. You see these themes and they begin to connect. And you read the Psalms and you start to notice, hey, wow, the nations are mentioned a lot in the Psalms and in, in, in Isaiah. What's, what's going on here? And then you get to your New Testament, and as we'll see, you, you start to see some of these things being fulfilled. But, but this is what Zechariah was looking forward to, right? God will grant to us these things that He swore to our father Abraham. And Paul's been reminding of this in Romans. Romans is tempered around a view of not only what God has done in Christ, but a view of, of redemptive history. How the Old Testament comes to a climax and fulfillment in what Jesus has done. Now, you can read Romans and not know any of the New Testament, and God can work in your heart and teach you justification and sanctification and, and, and walking in the Spirit and how to put sin to death and all of those things. But, but when you know your Old Testament, it's like reading it in 3D. You know, you see a, a depth there. You see connections, not just in, in verses that he uses, although you see that and you look at the verse and you look at the context in the Old Testament and you say, I see why Paul is doing this and how this fits together. But, but you also see themes that are fleshed out. Why? Because God confirms the promises given to the patriarchs. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you see that here, right? We've been looking at that in the book of Acts. Paul goes into the synagogue. He preaches the gospel when some of them believe and some of them reject, though then he also turns to the Gentiles. And today in Acts chapter 13, man, they were just pumped. They were excited. These Gentiles heard the word of God and they soaked it up like, like water on parched ground. And oh, that our hearts would be like that when we hear the Word of God. And so it's this Jew first and then to the Greek. And you see that in our passage. Christ comes to the Jewish people. He's a servant to the circumcised, to the Jew first. But what is the overflow of the expanding of the Gospel? It goes to all the nations. You see this as well, Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul is saying, Christ has confirmed these promises, these things that the law and the prophets bore witness to. You have this idea of the truthfulness or the faithfulness of God being manifest in Romans 3. But if our unrighteousness serves the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict human wrath on us? I'm speaking in, human, in, in a human way. And Paul goes on to say, no means. And then he says, but if, my lie, but if through my lie God's truth abounds, why am I still being condemned a sinner? Uh, we've already answered some of those questions. Uh, we can go back to that on, on our own if you'd like or talk to me afterwards. But I want you to notice this theme. This idea of the righteousness of God still being active. This idea of God's truth abounding for His glory. God is fulfilling His purposes. And you see this right here. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's 
truthfulness. It's the same idea and concept that Paul has been laying in Romans. Second, Christ confirms the promises of God so that the nations can glorify God. Uh, I did not plan this ahead of time, that Haley Ott would be here and planning to go to the nations, if you will, to Bolivia on the same Sunday that we are talking about one of the reasons Paul is passionate about missions. Uh, that was just a God thing in, in the timing uh, and plan and purpose of, of God. And so uh, that's exciting, but you'll see some of these themes connect. Notice that the Gentiles now glorify God having his mercy. So, verse 9, you have this connection in order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God with his for his mercy, as it is written. And we'll just pause there before we go on to the as it is written. But I want you to see this. Paul understands. Why does he understand this? Because he knows his Old Testament. Paul understands that when the gospel comes, not only will there be Jewish people that believe this is their Messiah, but mercy and grace will spread and turn to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles not only receive mercy, but in that mercy, they will come and glorify God. What is the chief end of God? To have all creation glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He is the highest of all beings and deserves worship and honor and glory. And it is awesome when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will come and glorify God. Part of God's saving plan then is that the Gentiles come to saving faith. We've seen this already in Romans. Romans 9, 24-26. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. Here who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, they will be called sons of the living God. Galatians 3.14 So that, this is Christ bears the curse for our sins, so that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise, the promised Spirit through faith. So what happens? God fulfills His promises to the patriarchs and part of that is we who are Gentiles who don't have Jewish heritage start coming to Christ. The Gospel starts going out. People start believing in the Roman world. And from the Roman world, it spreads into Europe. And from Europe, uh, it spreads into the Americas. And from the Americas in Europe, it spreads into Africa. And, And actually, technically, it went to Africa before it went into Europe. And it eventually goes to Asia. And the Gospel spreads to the nations. 2 Peter 2.10 And once you were a people, not, excuse me, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We tend to forget that the early church wrestled with this implication of can Gentiles be saved? Acts chapter 15. They had, they had seen earlier in Acts the, the, the Gentiles getting the Holy Spirit, Cornelius and all of those people. 
It was poured out on them. And the church gets together in Jerusalem and there are some still saying, well, I don't think these Gentiles are saved. You know, they haven't taken on the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of it. They haven't been circumcised. Can they really be saved? Can they really be part of these promises of God? And the church has to wrestle with this. And and actually, you know, where do they go? They go to the Old Testament. Uh, James, the the brother of Jesus, quotes Amos uh, chapter 9 to this effect. that, That God will rebuild the temple of David, the house of David. And that when he does this, Gentiles will come. And and he says, basically, guys, this is happening. If Jesus is our Messiah, if Jesus is the king on the throne, why do you question that Gentiles are coming? God has always said this would be. See how God welcomes us? First, he welcomes the people that had the covenant promises down through the ages He becomes a servant to the circumcised in Jesus Christ. But then he welcomes those who were far off, who were aliens, alienated from the promises of God, strangers to the covenants, worshiping pagan gods in many cases. Guys, most of us, unless you have Jewish heritage here today, that's us. Like We are the benefit of a god who would welcome people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Notice, the Old Testament looks forward to the Gentiles coming and glorifying God. Paul's going to demonstrate this using four scriptures. And we're just going to kind of move through these fairly quickly here this morning. First Old Testament verse, you see it here. Therefore, I I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So this is from 2 Samuel 22.50, which is also the same psalm in Psalm 18.49. This is the psalm of David. and, And David describes how God will bring down peoples and put them under me. David, I think here is speaking as, as, as prophesying as what will happen with the Messiah. Uh, David says, you brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You think of how Christ is exalted over his enemies who, tried, who killed him in the Gospels. Uh, you delivered me out from men of violence. Second Samuel twenty two fifty one. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. How did God do that? He raised Jesus from the dead. And so Paul takes this verse and he sees the, the whole section applied to Jesus and he says, I will praise you. This is putting this, I think, on the words of Jesus. O Lord, among the nations... And sing praises to your name. So there's this idea that, that Jesus is our King and He's praising God as we often see Him praising and praying to God. And He's doing it with Gentiles all around Him. Now, that verse alone isn't enough to say that Gentiles would worship God. But then as you connect this, you clearly see the theme. Romans 15.10 And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentile, with... His people. I suggest to you that that Paul is applying this to say that as Gentiles are worshipping with His people, 
with those who have Jewish heritage. They are doing it as those who become a part of His people. That analogy in Romans 11 that that Gentiles are grafted in and share in the promises of God. This comes from Deuteronomy 32.43. It actually comes uh, from uh, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Have this one line in here. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. This happens in the day where God vindicates His people and has compassion on His servants. Deuteronomy 32.6 So, this idea, God saves His people and what happens when God shows up to save? Gentiles are going to come to this. Again, Romans 15.11 Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. This is from Psalm 17. Uh, 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all the nations, extol Him, all the peoples. Verse 2, For great is the steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The, The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this, The truth of the Lord endures or remains forever. It's the exact same phrase that Paul has used Uh, earlier in verse 8 that Christ became a a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. That part of the truthfulness of God is that His Word is never broken. That He is faithful in carrying these things out. This concept in the Old Testament of of a steadfast, faithful love. And He extends it to His people in the way that He keeps the promises to the patriarchs. And as He keeps the promises that He made in the Old Testament, He extends the blessings of these promises to all the nations. Our God is a God who loves people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Our God embraces and welcomes people of cultural diversity, of different backgrounds, of different ethnicities. And he extends the the gospel. He extends it into Europe, people who are far from God. He extends it into America. He extends it into the jungles in Bolivia. The fourth verse comes from Isaiah 11.10 and it's in verse 12 of our passage. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. This is a promise again of the Messiah, someone from the line of David. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. It's actually, um, the Hebrew says that that the, the root of Jesse will be a signal and in him the nations shall inquire. But the Septuagint translates that inquire specifically to be they will hope. All this says is that Paul obviously had a con, uh, um, probably had a copy of a Greek Old Testament. Uh, he's speaking to people that are Greek. He maybe even had some of the Greek uh, memorized. He was multilingual, probably spoke uh, Arabic, uh, most definitely knew the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and clearly he knows uh, Greek as well. Uh, that's a topic and a discussion uh, for another day, but I, I just want you to notice this. Not only does Jesus Christ rule over the nations, 
He has authority over all heaven and earth. And when he comes, he will establish that kingship in a visible way that we can see it. What is true now that we know by faith, we will one day see by sight. But notice he doesn't just come to conquer the nations, right? We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. That was kind of the expectation of the Jewish person. The average Jewish person was, what's the Messiah going to do? Well, he's going to beat up the Romans. And we're finally going to have a kingdom. And we're finally going to be a a physical power in the land and and across uh, more than just the local land. We're going to be an empire, if you will. And we're going to have our Messiah. Of course, Jesus says to Pilate, right? My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has a kingship. All things have been put under his feet. But in his grace and mercy, he is not yet judging this earth not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is seeing that the gospel is being spread into the nations. Let me say this to you. Missions is not just a New Testament concept. It is anticipated in the Old Testament. Now, not that the Great Commission is given word for word in the Old Testament, but there is this overwhelming idea That when God acts to save, not only will Israel see it, but His glory will be so evident, the nations will see it. And there will be nations that reject. There will be nations that rebel, that stand against God and His Messiah. But there will be these groups from among the nations, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, who start coming. And what do they do when they come? They're going to worship. And in the Psalms and in Isaiah, there's all of these calls. Oh, nations. Oh, peoples. Oh, Gentiles. Give praise to Him. Worship Him. Do these things. We see these things fulfilled and being fulfilled now. The fact that the Gospel is here in York County, in in Pennsylvania, is a sign that the gospel has gone and is going to the ends of the earth. I mean, the the early disciples, I'm sure they couldn't have even fathomed how big the earth was. You know, the, the Roman Empire was largely the known world, right? And they knew it went all the way up into Britain and some of those places. And they knew Africa went pretty far and there were a lot of ancient trade routes and all those things. But man, I'm sure they didn't envision a whole two other continents. Well, three other continents if you count Australia. We sometimes think that because we're in America, we're special. And we are the ones that take the gospel. We have this wonderful rich heritage out of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s of sending missionaries. And and praise God for that. But let's keep in mind... This, we were not God's chosen people, America, sending missionaries. We were God's, the ends of the earth, sending missionaries to other ends of the earth. From this perspective, that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. From this perspective in the book of Acts, that I will make you uh, my witnesses in, Judea, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and, and even to the ends of the earth. We are part of that big picture. And we need to let that humble us a bit. We are not special 
in the plan and the saving plan and purpose of God because we're American. Now, look, I love being American. I'm not knocking our country. I'm just saying put this into a biblical perspective. We are the Gentiles that God welcomed. And we, in turn, should be turning and welcoming others. Maybe it's local people that need to hear the gospel. You have some neighbors. Maybe it's going to Bolivia or to Africa or to to Southeast Asia because people need to hear the gospel. Maybe it's crossing your street and going to someone that's a different culture. There are more cross-cultural mission opportunities in America today than there have ever been. We have more opportunities to welcome people to the gospel and welcome them with the gospel from another culture just by crossing our street, just by going into downtown York or or downtown uh, Lancaster or Philly or Baltimore or D.C. We have a missionary in the BSC. He's going to Chicago. And he's going to go into the city of Chicago and reach into a Muslim section of town. I think they're mostly Syrian Muslims, but don't, don't quote me on that. The point being, what a tremendous opportunity. Set politics aside. If we have refugees and immigrants coming to our country as a Christian, What is my responsibility? If they know the gospel, they're a brother and sister in Christ, right? And this whole section of Scripture is welcoming others just as Christ welcomed us. It was to smooth over and patch up the the relationships, the tensions between Jew and Gentile. Do those tensions between ethnic groups exist in our world today? Yeah. If they're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is my responsibility to them? To welcome them. I invite them to the gospel. And it is the gospel that God sacrificed himself for me in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that compels me to want to welcome others, to invite them to saving faith. So, so that the gospel is what I believe. It is the source of my salvation. It is the only hope of my salvation. But when I understand the gospel, when it is rooted into my heart, how does that cause me to respond to people who are different from me? Gentiles were different from Jewish people. And Christ, who was Jewish, died for the Jew and the Greek. And the Gospel was spread in the early church and they had to cross cultures. And believe me, it created a lot of problems in the early church. But the ground of unity in the church is our common union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let God fill you with hope as you see how God keeps His promises. That He knits people together. 
that, that the promise to Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed is being fulfilled as, as Gentiles and Jewish people, but specifically as Gentiles become children of God, adopted as sons of God. That's the argument of Galatians. Or one of the arguments. The point is this. And and I'm just assuming most of us don't have Jewish heritage here. If you have Jewish heritage, amen. The, The covenant promises were given to your patriarchs. If you're a Gentile, you've come to share in the promises that God gave to the patriarchs because God welcomed you. It's not the American patriarchs that have blessings from God. It's the patriarchs in the Bible that have blessings from God. And if you are in the church, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has so kept His promises that He has brought you to be a partaker of them. How much more do I need to welcome others? To love people sacrificially. To realize that no matter what differences we have, whether it's skin color or economic background, or maybe you have more hair than me or better hair than me, you're tall, I'm short, whatever it might be, we have a common spiritual unity in Jesus Christ that grounds us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Pray that you would work in our hearts and that we would ask ourselves how we treat one another. Do we love? Do we have compassion? Do we welcome people with the gospel? Even as we hear this call that that rejoice, O Gentiles, that we would be reminded what a privilege it is as people who did not know you and did not walk with you and did not have a, a, a physical connection to your covenant promises are now worshiping and rejoicing, lifting up the name of Jesus and glorifying God with heart, mind, body and soul. That Jesus came to do these things for the glory of God. And you are achieving that. Oh Lord, may your name be glorified here in our church and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.